praise the Lord and give thanks to the Lord that He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord and declare all His praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have, co- we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea of the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. When they believed his words, they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wandering craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Ephraim. Fire also broke out in the company and flame, the flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in horror and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Pan, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the present land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. And a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness, from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. But they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples, as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and plagued the poor in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, 
he looked upon her distress, and he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant, and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Say this, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, hello again, friends. Uh, it would be wonderful if you can uh, uh, have your Bibles open at Psalm 106. Uh, and uh, hello to everyone on Zoom land uh, this, this morning as well. It would be great if uh, you can also uh, turn to Psalm 106, and uh, we'll work our way through uh, this psalm today. Uh, will you join me in prayer? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your grace and mercy, uh, you have saved us uh, as your people and uh, gathered us to yourself. And uh, thank you that we can give expression to that gathering by uh, meeting around your word this morning. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would uh, please teach us from your word, uh, show us wonderful things about yourself uh, from the things that we read, and uh, we pray that that might lead uh, to uh, our lips uh, praising your wonderful deeds and uh, your wonderful character. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, when was the last time you were accepted by someone? When was the last time you were accepted by someone? Uh, perhaps you've just finished your HSC. Uh, I know there are some younger ones out there. Uh, and you've been accepted into the course that you've been wanting to get into. Uh, perhaps you've been accepted by the love of your life and now you are married to them. Uh, perhaps you've been accepted into a, a group of friends and it's wonderful doing life together with them. Uh, whatever it is, being accepted is a wonderful and affirming experience, isn't it? Now, I, I want to suggest that many people think that this is the way it will go with God. Now, many years ago, there was a famous television uh, advertisement put out by the Roman Catholic Church that asked the question, when you get to heaven, what do you think you'll say? Uh, some of you are old enough to remember that advertisement. Put your hand up if you remember that advertisement. No one's <laughs> admitting to being old. Um, well, the answer that that advertisement gave was, well, you'll say g'day. <laughs> you know, if you've lived a half-decent life and you, you, you go to heaven, then you'll say g'day, and God will say g'day, and accept you and welcome you into heaven with open arms. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it? But is it true? Will the God who knows every detail of our lives really accept everyone into heaven? Will the God who knows our real attitudes to him and to others, and who knows every thought and every inclination of our hearts, will he really accept everyone into heaven? 
Will he accept you? Will he accept me? Well, we've been looking at the Psalms for a number of weeks now, and today uh, we've, we've come to Psalm 106, which is the final Psalm in Book 4 of the Psalms. Uh, you'll notice there that it's another Hallelujah Psalm. Uh, it's a praise the Lord kind of Psalm. Because you can see uh, that it begins in verse 1 uh, with the words, Praise the Lord, and it ends uh, in the very last verse uh, with those same words, Praise the Lord. But uh, this psalm is a little bit different because it raises the question of, Will God accept your praise? Will God accept your praise? You can see the crucial question in verse 2, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 2, where the psalmist says, Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, or declare all his praise? That is, who is the one who can praise God fully in a way that is acceptable to him? And the answer, well, it comes in verse 3. It's the one who observes justice and who does what is right. Not some of the time, but notice all of the time, at all times. In other words, it's one thing to praise God, but it's another thing altogether for God to accept your praise. For God will only accept the praise of the one who observes justice and who does what is right all of the time. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, especially these days, I frequently get calls from telemarketers. Uh, is anyone getting more calls these days? Yeah, a lot of us. And uh, when I happen to answer the call, um, whoever's on the other end is often very full of praise for me. They say things like, you must be such a hard-working person. Uh, you must be a very generous person. You sound like such a nice person, they say. But in the end, uh, I politely hang up the phone because I know that they are just buttering me up uh, and not really interested in me, but just wanting to sell me something. So I don't accept their praise. It's the same with God, isn't it? You can give him praise, but the only people that he will accept praise from are those who are righteous at all times. Which poses a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? Because are you righteous all the time? I mean, it doesn't take me too long after I get out of bed to begin my journey of unrighteousness for the day. Uh, I wonder whether that's the same with you. And so how is it that our praises can be acceptable to God? I mean, this psalmist has a great longing to be accepted by God and to be a part of God's blessing, uh, which you see there in his prayer of verses 4 to 5. It's his great longing to be part of the prosperity and joy and glory that God has in store for his people, but who is the person who can fully praise God in a way that will be accepted by him? Uh, that's the question that this psalm raises. 
Well, if we continue to look at this psalm, it's quite evident that the ones who can fully praise God in a way that is acceptable to God is not all of the people of Israel. But it's not just the Israel of old, but the psalmist himself and the Israel of his day as well. Uh, that's why the bulk of this psalm is actually uh, the psalmist leading his people in a, in a uh, confession of sin. Saying that the sins of Israel of old are also their sins as well. Uh, in, have a look with me at verse 6. Verse 6 he says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. And so, friends, what follows in this psalm is basically a, a whole catalogue of the sins of Israel in the past, in their past history. But they're the kind of sins that the psalmist himself identifies with. And uh, I wonder, as we go through these sins of Israel, uh, you and I can also see ourselves as taking part in these sins as well, in a way which will lead to our own confession before God. Uh, now, the first sin uh, mentioned here, uh, you can see, is the rebellion of Israel in Egypt. The rebellion of Israel in Egypt. Uh, you might know the story, but uh, picture it with me. Uh, God has just freed Israel, the people of Israel, from slavery in Egypt by sending ten horrifying plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But not long after they leave Egypt, well, Pharaoh hardens his heart again so that he sends his army, his chariots, to hunt down and kill every last Israelite. The only problem is that as Israel is coming out of Egypt, well, God leads them to the Red Sea, which seems to be a bit of a cul-de-sac. Uh, they have the Red Sea in front of them, they seem to be blocked, and they've got the mighty Egyptian army bearing upon their backs. And so what does Israel do? Well, they rebel against God, don't they? They say to God, well, it would have been better for us to stay in Egypt rather than to die here in the wilderness. What is the sin here? Well, the sin here is not that they were frightened. I mean, anyone would be frightened if, uh, if an army was bearing upon them, wanting to kill them. But in verse 7, it's the fact that they did not remember God and His powerful works in the past when they were in a pickle in the present. The sin is that they thought that life would be better back there without God. Have you ever thought like this before? Have you ever forgotten God's powerful love for you in Christ and His promises to you when you find yourself in a bit of a pickle in the present? Have you ever thought to yourself that life without God would be so much better so that you try to find your own solutions to your life rather than listening to the voice of God 
See, friends, the sin of Israel is not simply unique to Israel, but it's your sin, and it's my sin as well. Well, despite Israel's rebellion, you can see there that God graciously rescues them by uh, parting the Red Sea so that the people of Israel can uh, cross over on dry land. And if you know the story, uh, after the Israelites cross over, God uh, sends the waves down upon the Egyptian army so that they all drown in the sea. And the Israelites celebrate by believing God's word and singing his praises. You can see that this enthusiasm is short-lived because soon after, they find themselves in the wilderness where they start to crave the things that they had back in Egypt. It's almost comical, but uh, if you remember, the people of Israel complain to God and they say, well, back in Egypt, we had things like meat and fish and cucumbers, and garlic. I mean, garlic's good, but really? Like, they've just forgotten that they were in slavery. Again, you can see in verse 13 that the nature of the sin here is forgetting God and not trusting that he would care for them in the wilderness. Rather than being satisfied by God and His Word and His promises, or they crave the things they had in their life prior to salvation, thinking that these things will ultimately bring satisfaction to their lives. And so they put God to the test by demanding that God give them these things now, rather than trusting in God's provision. And again, I want to ask you and, and me this morning whether we have known this kind of craving in our lives. It might not be meat or cucumbers, but have there been times when you and I have craved our pre-salvation lives so much that we start to think, well, if I can just have those things again, I will be satisfied, even if it means not having God in my life. If I can just have sex outside of marriage, if I can just live for my own pleasure, if I can just have all the things that the world offers, then I will be satisfied in a way that God is not providing for me at this moment. So we end up rejecting God's word and demanding that God satisfy us in these ways. But of course, these things never provide the satisfaction that we are after, do they? That's why in the case of Israel, um, God actually gives them all the meat that they ask for in the form of quails. If you have a look at verse 15, it says there that, uh, God gave them what they asked. Now, that's not a positive thing here. <laughs> because sometimes God gives people what they ask for as a judgment against them. You want meat, says God? 
I will give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils. And you see whether that meat is going to satisfy you in the way that I can satisfy you. Some time ago, there was an experiment done uh, where they put these uh, little electrodes into the brains of mice. And uh, they gave these mice a little lever uh, to press, which would give them a pleasure hit uh, in the brain. Uh, apparently, the mice would go to this uh, lever and press it tens of thousands of times because they crave the satisfaction of, of the pleasure hit. Uh, the tragedy is, however, that they all ignored the life-giving water and food that was next to the little lever. And so in the end, they all starved to death. And that's what our world is like, isn't it, friends? Searching for satisfaction in things that ultimately do not satisfy and ignoring the God who offers life itself. But it's not just the world. For we often can be like the people of Israel, forgetting God's powerful work of the past, saying His promises are not enough for me, and demanding things from God now, thinking that these things will satisfy us. Do you crave God and seek your satisfaction in Him? Or do you crave the things of this world and put God to the test? Friends, uh, the next scene in the long catalogue of sins is that of jealousy uh, in verse 16. Uh, you may be familiar with this incident in Israel's history, but it refers to the time when uh, there were three individuals called Korah, uh, Dathan, and Abiram. It, uh, you can find that in number 16. And uh, these three uh, get together and they start influencing others in the Israelite camp to rebel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Uh, they refuse to submit to the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Uh, it's not, and it's not as though, though uh, these people were not given a task by God to do, for uh, they were all from the priestly tribe and were given the role of serving God at the tabernacle. But it's quite clear from verse 16 that these people were not raising legitimate concerns about the leadership of Moses and Aaron, but rather they were driven by jealousy for Moses and Aaron, whom God had appointed as leaders and given wonderful gifts to. Now again, uh, this kind of insubordination, uh, insubordination and jealousy is nothing new, is it? It's actually the thing that motivated, if you remember, the religious leaders of Israel to reject the authority of Jesus himself. Have you and I ever despised authorities that God has placed over us? Perhaps our parents, or the government, or those in church leadership. Have we been jealous of their authority over us rather than supporting them and 
encouraging me. I reckon this is a particular thing for many uh, of us who are in full-time ministry. Uh, you know, it's very easy when you're in ministry to look at all your other ministry colleagues who are very gifted and uh, who seem to be doing very well in ministry. And deep inside in your heart, you start to despise them and be jealous of the things that God has given to them. Is that true for those of us who are in ministry? It's a terrible thing because God actually gives gifts to individuals so that those gifts can be used for the benefit of everyone in God's family. But rather than rejoicing in God's goodness, it's so easy to become selfish and jealous and think of God as less than good because He hasn't given me that authority or that gift. Which is why God judges all three of these men in verse 17 by simply opening up the ground so it swallows them and their families alive. But that's not all. Because what comes next in the catalogue of sinners is that unspeakable, unspeakably horrible act of idolatry in Mount Sinai. Uh, you know, that's where the people of Israel made uh, the golden calf to worship in the place of the Lord who had rescued them out of Egypt. Uh, you can see it there in verse 19, can't you? Have a look with me at verse 19. Uh, they made a calf in horror and worship the metal image. They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass, it says. It sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? I mean, these were the people who had just witnessed God's astonishing power in sending plague after plague to destroy their enemies. This was a people who had witnessed a God who loved them so much that God had brought them to Mount Sinai to enter into an everlasting covenant with them. But the first thing they do when God seems to be distant is that they exchange the worship of God to worship a statue of a cow that eats grass. Well, in verse 21, we are told that it's because they forgot God who had saved them. You see, when you forget God as your Savior, you turn to all manner of other things that you think will save you in your life. Is that true? It sounds stupid. That's what human beings are like in many ways. Once you turn away from the worship of the true and living God, well, you end up worshipping anything and everything. Uh, it was G.K. Chesterton who famously wrote, when people no longer believe in something, they believe not in nothing, but in anything. It's true of our world, isn't it? Worshipping sex and money, children, and career, and achievements, and beauty, and art, and all manner of things which they put above God, in the desperate hope that these things will save them. 
to worship God are not immune to this kind of idolatry, are we? We also have functional gods along with the rest of the world thinking that these things will ultimately bring us satisfaction and salvation and the life that we so desperately want for ourselves. But make no mistake, friends, when you and I stand before the judgment seat of God one day, it will not be your money or your children or your achievements or the size of your house that saves you from the wrath of God. It's reported that when Frank Sinatra was on his deathbed, uh, he called the Pope to offer him a staggeringly large sum of money. But you can't buy your way into heaven. Our money will not save us. We can't rely on our functional saviors when the time comes to leave this earth, especially if our motto, like Sinatra, has been I live my life my way. Now, exchanging the glory of God for the worship of idols rightly attracts the wrath of God. Now, in the next little section of this psalm, we are back in the wilderness and we are reminded of the grumbling of Israel just before they enter the promised land. Uh, and you know the story. Uh, Moses sends some spies into the promised land, and uh, they come back with a wonderful report saying, This land is a wonderful land that God is giving us. A land flowing with milk and honey. But they also report that the people who live in the promised land are like giants. So uh, perhaps it might not be a good thing to go into the land now. It's only Caleb and Joshua, if you remember, who trust God enough that they encourage the people of Israel to be courageous and to take the land that God is giving to them. But how do the people of Israel respond? Uh, well, in verse 24, we are told that they have no faith in God's promises. In verse 25, they murmur or grumble in their tents and resolve not to obey God's command to go and take the land. It's often the case that we grumble in secret, isn't it? Some of us may keep our grumbling in check in public. But like Israel, I wonder whether it's true that we can tend to grumble in our tents, in our homes, and resolve in our not to obey the word of God because we are afraid of what that might mean for us. Because God hates grumbling. It's striking that there are lots of sins in the Bible that God forgives, but the thing that causes God to finally lose patience with the first generation of Israel coming out of Egypt is their persistent grumbling. Which is why in verse 16, God raises his hand to swear that these people will never enter the promised land and to see it for themselves. Uh, now, brothers and sisters, we won't have time to work through uh, all the, the, the rest of the sins um, that are listed in this psalm today. Perhaps you can go home and um, uh, look over this psalm again in detail. 
that. Uh, you can see that there are a number of other Psalms that are, that are listed. Um, in verses 28 to 31, there's the sin of idolatry and sexual immorality at a place called Pure. Um, in verses 32 to 33, there's the sin of dishonoring God, uh, which means Moses misses out on the promised land. And in verses 34 to 46, um, it's actually recounting the period of the judges where uh, the people of Israel compromise themselves with uh, the nations who live in the land so that their lives actually look no different from the lives of others around them. But the thing I want you to see very clearly this morning is that the sin of Israel in the past is the sin of the, the people of Israel in the psalmist day. And if we are honest, it is also our sin as well. Can you and I claim that we have not sinned by rebelling against God's word or by being jealous of the things that God has given to others or by worshipping idols or grumbling or by sexual immorality or by any other sin that personally offends God who has been gracious to us? Which poses a problem for us, doesn't it? Because in the flow of this psalm, if we are sinful and far from righteous in our lives, then the praise of God might be on our lips. But why do you think that God would accept your praise and my praise? In fact, why, why would we think that God would accept us at all? But here's the thing, friends. It is only when we genuinely confess our sin before God that we have any hope of being accepted by God. It is only when we admit to God that we are far from righteous and deserving of His wrath that we can have hope of God accepting us. For when we understand that there is actually no hope in ourselves, in myself, in you, and it drives us to seek our hope outside of ourselves. And that's why in this psalm, the hope of Israel lies not in themselves, but in certain people who act as intercessors, who stand between the people of Israel and God in order to turn away God's anger. Did you notice that? You can see it, for example, in verse 23, after the golden calf incident. God is so red-hot angry that he wants to destroy his people. But Moses stands in as the intercessor who turns away God's anger so that his people would be spared. Further, you see it again in verse 30 in the example of Phinehas. Uh, you might know the story, but God is angry at the idolatry and the sexual immorality of his people. But it is Phinehas who, in his zeal, steps in and kills an Israelite man uh, together with his lover by driving a spear through them. It's because of this righteous act where he stood for God that God's anger is turned away from Israel. And finally, you can see it there in verse 47, which I think is really the prayer of the psalmist 
as an intercessor. For he prays these words. Have a look at verse 47. He prays, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glorify, a glory rather, in your praise. I don't know whether Jesus would have prayed his prayer word for word. But no doubt, Jesus did pray his, the content of this prayer as our intercessor. Jesus prayed to God for the salvation of his people. Jesus prayed to God that God would gather his people from the nations as a shepherd gathers his sheep, as we saw in the New Testament reading. Jesus would have longed for God's people to praise God in ways that would be accepted by Him. Oh yes, Jesus prayed this prayer. And it was a prayer that was wonderfully answered on a lonely hill in a place called Golgotha, where Jesus died on a cross in a place of sinners, sinners like you and me as our intercessor to save us from God's wrath. It was wonderfully answered at the cross where God gathered a people from all nations to himself. And it was wonderfully answered at the cross where God accepted a people for himself who would praise his name, having cleared them of their sin. And so who is the one who can fully praise God? Well, ultimately, there was only ever one who could fully praise God in an acceptable way. There was only ever one true Israelite who could praise God in the way that he deserves to be praised. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived a just and righteous life all of the time. But in the Gospel, we are reminded that he died on the cross so that our sin, your sin, my sin, might be punished in his body on the cross and so that his righteousness might be given to us. So that in him, we also can give our praise to God in a way that will be acceptable to him. Isn't that wonderful? If you are somebody who is in Christ, God will accept your praise. But it's only through Him. So why don't we do that now by saying the words of verse 48. Uh, they're going to come up on the screen uh, behind me. I wonder whether we can all stand and uh, let's praise God uh, by saying these words together. Together. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord.